Hello and good morning, everyone. Only positivity here. I have my coffee with me, ready to explore this new phase of life with you all. So, over the past few years, I have gained a whole new perspective on life, and I've realized that life is too short to not be enjoying yourself while doing great things. So, come along with me as I explore this new lens through fitness, photography, reading, traveling, cannabis, and much more. Looking forward to the journey, guys. And remember, only positivity. Hello and good morning, everyone. Only positivity here. I have my coffee with me, ready to kick off podcast number 40 on this playlist that I'm looking to launch called Elevated Thoughts. Now, before diving into the book and everything for today, let's just start with the level set. So, you know, as I endeavor upon pursuing knowledge and life experience in this next phase of life through cannabis, fitness, photography, traveling, many more things, one habit that I've really formed is reading. So this podcast essentially goes through some of the books I've been reading as of late, taking those lessons learned and applying them to experiences in my life. Now, um, before we jump into the book um, and the topic for today, let's go and start with uh, a couple stories. So, you know, the first portion of this is not really a story. So, you know, as I work on these podcasts and developing, um, you know, some of the talking points and things like that, I generally type them out on a Word document, right? So over the past few years, um, I've been able to ride out this free account that I had um, by every year just logging into my grad school email and installing Microsoft Office on my computer, right? So, you know, yesterday I, I log in and I, you know, I can't type on the document on my Mac and um, I realize that my subscription has gone away, right? So, you know, basically usually what that means is just go into my email and reinstall the apps. But my grad school has officially transitioned me over into an alumni status. So I actually cannot download um, any of the Microsoft apps on my computer anymore. So, you know, I'm just editing on my phone and things like that. But, you know, it just kind of goes to show how cheap I am because I I looked up the price of, of, of Microsoft, um, like a basic package, right, for like Word, um, all the whole suite, right, Word, Excel, um, Microsoft Outlook, all those things, and it's a hundred bucks a year, which is not that much, you know, but it's like, mm, I, I just don't know if I want to pay that, so yeah, I'm just being cheap, so I'm probably going to cave in about like a couple of days, but I'm just um, rebelling right now, but um, so anyway, you know, just a quick attestation to my cheapness, but anyway, so we'll come back to the story uh, for today. So, um, so when I was in high school, I'm sure a lot of people have done this, but you know, kind of sneak out, right? Sneak out, go hang out with friends, go meet up with a girl, whatever it is, you know? And, um, my parents are really strict and they were also really light sleepers. So it was hard for me, uh, to ever sneak out. I never really did. You know, I also never really started messing around with girls until like, like senior year of high school. I was really like a guy's guy, like a bro, you know, play video games with the guys, basketball, soccer, all those things on Friday nights. So, um, you know, around senior year, I started going to dances, just started, you know, you're getting ready for college, you're just going to have some fun. So ultimately, um, there's one night I sneak out, right? Sneak out to go like, um, to go meet up with this girl, right? So sneak out, go do my thing. And, um, you know, it's very, very daring of me because like my, my, my parents would wake up at a pin drop and there's all these like creaky noises, the wood panels in my house. You couldn't go up and down the stairs without waking my parents because the master bedroom was, you know, right by the, 
the uh, the stairs. So even if you got up to go to the bathroom, you know, my parents were both like, they snore like crazy. They're just like synonymous, you know, orchestral with their snoring. So like whenever I put my foot on the ground and you hear that, you would hear their snoring stop. So you know they were kind of awake. So, you know, one night I was downstairs and I just ended up, you know, ducking out really quickly to meet up this chick. So I come back around like 5, 5.30 a.m., you know, right before my parents are waking up to go to work and everything like that. And it's still relatively dark. It's still pretty much pitch black at the time. So it must have been like 4.30, right? So, you know, I get dropped off like a block away because I don't want, you know, any, any noise to wake up my parents um, if someone pulls up in the driveway, right? So she drops me off and I'm walking home, right? So... As I um, am approaching my house, I, it becomes deathly silent, right? It becomes eerily quiet, and it's pitch black outside. Um, there's like one street light down the road that you can see things on. Um, so I'm just walking. I see, I see my house, and I'm, I'm going to go through the back, right? So I got to go through the fence. I got to open the fence door. So I'm walking, and all of a sudden I hear this whistling, right? Somebody is whistling, and it's not like the wind whistling. It's a person whistling. Now, I can't whistle, otherwise I would, I would kind of like um, reenact that for you, but I start hearing someone whistling, and I immediately just look around. I'm looking around for this, like a shadow. I'm looking around for a figure. I'm looking around for anything, because I can't really tell where it's coming from, right? But it's definitely a person, um, and it's going on for quite some time, and I'm stuck in my shoes, right? Can't move. So then I, I just listen, and I hear the whistling continue, and ultimately... I jump over my fence. I, I finally sprint to my fence and I jump over it, right? And my f fence is like maybe five to like six feet high, you know? So I just like kind of put my hands on top and leap over it in one fell swoop. Um, and I just like fall on my face on the other hand. I get up and sprint inside. And it turns out it was my dad, right? So it turns out it was my dad. And um, I, you know, he was, uh, he was waiting for me. He saw me. They knew I got out. Like, I pretty much figured that was going to happen. But, um, yeah, so I got a whole mess of trouble for doing that. Luckily, you know, every, nothing too crazy. I was, I was safe for the most part. But um, I still remember it vividly to this day, right? It's, uh, I wouldn't say it traumatized me, but it definitely shook me hard. And like I said, I can still vividly picture that moment. I could walk you through all of it today in, 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 in the most um, excruciating detail. So... Um, kind of, kind of got like an unsolved mysteries vibe to that story, but not really. So yeah, just an interesting one for, uh, and I'm sure a lot of people have had like, um, those sneak out stories, right? Like you, you have to be sly about it. It really, um, puts your, uh, your spy or your espionage skills to the test. So, um, yeah, fun story. But anyway, let's come back to the book for today. So, um, today we're going to go through part four of the religions book by Big Ideas Simply Explained. So um, before we jump into it, um, you know, one thing that I really noticed about this, about this book is that there's a lot of themes that go through these religions, right? Um, we noticed that, um, you know, climate, politics, uh, development, civilization um, really has an impact on religion as it develops, right? So as people move away from, you know, agriculture um, to more uh, civilized society, the, the set of beliefs change, right? We see a lot of spirituality coming with um, rain, harvest, um, sun, things like that, cold, because these extreme conditions push people to potentially believe in you know spirits and things like that. And, and that's just my opinion, but um, it seems like a theme throughout a lot of these religions. Now, um, for today's topic, 
we're going to go through Buddhism. Now, I'm very excited to go through Buddhism with you guys. It's one of, it seems to be like one of my favorite belief systems, and I really didn't know much about it. I don't think I do, right, still, but the, the high-level principles that the book goes over are amazing, and I think it's a, it offers a great set of tools um, to really achieve some inner peace. So let's just go ahead and jump into it, right? So we're talking about Buddhism for today. Um, so Buddhism is one of those religions, right? Similar to Hinduism in many facets, but very different as well. And it can be regarded more as a, a philosophical tool set, more so than a religion, right? So there's no mention, there's no direct mention of a god in Buddhism. And let's talk about some of the, uh, the actual people, right? Some of the historical figures. So Siddhartha Gautama is, is Buddha, right? And that translate, Buddha, Buddha translates to awakened one. Um, so, you know, one thing to note about that is he didn't have like a spiritual experience or, or a vision or, or a spirit that visited him, right? The, the quote-unquote religion of Buddhism is it's all about his findings after an extended period of thought and experience that he calls enlightenment, right? And so we, we talk about enlightenment as opposed to revelation, right? So that distinction is one to really to note as we make our way through the different stories and the different uh, principles we're going to go through. So, you know, Buddha never de denies or confirms the existence of a god. He, they just, the, the belief in God is just not in accordance with his beliefs, right? So what I, what I, what I correlate that to is, is a good early sign of tolerance, right? Buddhism is accepting of all beliefs and all walks of life. So, you know, it doesn't go against the other religions, but it doesn't go with it either. It just presents a different perspective, which I think is great, right? I think we're all different, and um, we shall accept our different beliefs, right? And if we can't, we have to really kind of dissect that. So, a couple of notes on, on Buddha, right? Siddhartha Gautama himself. So, he actually grew up in a Hindu family, right? So, he grew up with this um, Brah Brahmanic belief that we talked about in Hinduism. Um, in the Indian subcontinent, right? Now, the main concept of those religions was the circle of, of death, life, and rebirth, right? And that was the only way a, a Hindu... Um, so, so the only way a Hindu could remove themselves from that cycle was through Hindu religious practices. And that had to be performed by like a guru or a Brahmin. So someone who had the designation of a priest and they could only perform those rituals through them. Okay, so now when we come back to Buddhism, instead of rituals, right, Buddhism offers a change in lifestyle plus meditation as a way to achieve this thing called nirvana, right? So um, Buddhism was also passed down by word of mouth, right? So it wasn't until centuries after Buddha died that the religion was actually written in um, the book called the Tripitaka. So Buddhism explores that idea of enlightenment and how one can achieve nirvana. Okay, so Buddhism also believes in samsara, right? So you remove yourself from that cycle of life and death and rebirth. But the distinction to make is that the main obstacle is human suffering, and that's caused by desire and material attachments. And those types of vices are insatiable, right? Meaning that they can never be satisfied. That thirst can never be quenched. So one of the main concepts in Buddhism is the middle way, right? A simple lifestyle, a meditative lifestyle, reflective. And it sounds simple, 
but it can be often difficult to attain. Now, personally, I've started dabbling around in some slight forms of meditation, but it's not easy whatsoever. It's very, very tough. Um, I even try the breathing exercise, right, when I'm sleeping, just to like count my breaths. Basic form of meditation. But I, I really can't get past 10 before my mind starts wandering in all these different directions. Start thinking about my day, start thinking about what I have to do tomorrow, um, start thinking about um, you know what I'm gonna eat, things like that, where I'm gonna be in five years, 10 years, things like that. So um, meditation is a crucial stable of Buddhism. So just a couple of facts and figures is that Buddhism is the fourth largest religion in the world today with about 500 million followers, okay? So that's the onset, a little long, but um, I'm, I'm just really excited to, to share this religion with you guys, this philosophy, so I'm gonna take my time with it. So let's go to our first story, right? So we're gonna talk about the enlightenment of Buddha, right? Or the enlightenment of Siddhartha Gautama transforming into the Buddha. Now, this takes place um, in 6th century uh, northern India, okay? So um, to lay, the, to lay the, the background or the foundation of the story, um, this was a time where India was going through some drastic political and social change, right? Um, there was a lot of conflict, a lot of war, a lot of bloodshed between cities. Um, and they were moving away from that agricultural lifestyle, moving towards trade, commerce, and things like that. So naturally, people are drawn away from agriculture as they compartmentalize it, and people start asking questions about religion and life in general, right? So we, we remember in the last podcast about Hinduism that um, the caste system was very prevalent in India at the time. So now you'll see throughout time how different civilizations and different religions deal with questions, right? So if someone questions the religion, some, some religions will accept it and some will oppress the questions, right? Um, some will consider those things heresy. But um, it seems as if Buddhist, Buddhism is one of those religions that welcome questions, right? And they don't give you any answers, but they give you the tools to find answers on your own. So, like I said, there was already these Vedic religions in Hinduism with ritual sacrifice, and the authority of these texts was usually given to only the Brahmin class. So at the time, society was all about obedience and maintaining that difference in classes. Now, now one thing we talk about now, and I think we've talked about this in previous podcasts, is saying no, right? Especially in the South Asian population, it's very disrespectful, or it's considered disrespectful, to say no, okay? So now, imagine questioning belief, right? And I think people tend to get defensive when they don't have answers, right? behind their beliefs, right? It's like, I told you so, and that's why. But now as you get older, right, um, even in the workplace and things like that, you should always be able to ask a question in a respectful way and get an answer, right? And if someone says that's how it is, well, I guess you have to live with that, but that's not really something that you can act upon. That's not something you can ingest and really rationalize if it if it just is so, right? Um, so there, there was a lot of gurus at the time, and... Um, they, they they went through different extremes, right? Um, so some would some would deny the formalities of life, and they would adopt this ascetic lifestyle, right? Become like a wandering um, ascetic, you know, become like this wandering presence, live in the forest, um, not, not have a, a distinct home or distinct lo location. They would deny like all worldly pleasures, 
deny all material things, and they lived outside the class system, right? So there's like these Hindu, Hindu ascetics that would just be wandering, right? Sages, Hare Krishnas, things like that. Now, when we talk about Siddhartha Gautama, he was wealthy, right? He came from a wealthy family, um, and as he approached adulthood, he realized that his lifestyle wasn't correct, right? He was aware of like the hardships that life poses, but he also became aware that material things, more money, more cars, more clothes, these material things don't offer any escape from the realities of life. Now, we come back to, to today's world. Now, let's talk about, does that promotion offer you more happiness? Will you be happy once you get that promotion? Um, does more money offer you happiness? Now, obviously, everyone needs basic income to have a, a solid level of happiness, right? But after a certain point, do you actually achieve more happiness, right? Does getting that new car offer you happiness, right? So so ultimately, you know, Siddhartha Gautama leaves his life of luxury, right? A, a, a very, very uh, ballsy move, right? Daring move. And he, he embarks on this seven-year journey as an ascetic, right? So he consumes only the minimum sustenance that he needs for survival. Now, after that seven-year period, he realizes that that life of denial doesn't give him fulfillment either, right? So he abandons that life of asceticism and he becomes enlightened after one full night of meditation, right? Under under the under this tree, he sits and becomes the Buddha. Now, after this, he became known as the Buddha, right? He's enlightened and now he's the Buddha. So you see, so that the point of this is, right? So he had a, a luxurious lifestyle and then he lived as a monk. So neither extreme was going to make him happy or bring him peace. So you see an early onset of a need to strike a balance, right? So this balance Buddha calls the middle way. And this was his main teaching. So like I said, it's a balance between that life of luxury and the ascetic lifestyle of self-denial. So the main point, obviously material comforts are not going to bring you true happiness. But also self-denying and dropping everything to pursue the spiritual growth is not practical. So it may be an escape, but it's kind of like a vacation, right? Um, it's kind of like an, a prolonged vacation because to me personally, like I'm someone else on vacation. I'm, 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 I'm vacation, you know, uh, mode, just, you know, very positive all the time, doing a, like very laissez-faire, um, no real agenda, go with the flow type thing. But it's not practical to live like that, right? That all runs out. So, like I said, ultimately, the, the, the message here is to find a balance and live an ethical life. Um, don't overindulge. Don't overindulge in sensual pleasure, but also don't deny it, right? So, you know, like, you know, I want to use an example here, right? But um, it's like, you know, you know, if you want, let's say a car, right? I'm, I'm, I'm going to like pull an example on my ass. So let's say you buy a car. There's no need to really overindulge in some very, very high-end expensive car. And that's all relative, right? A car is for what? Point A to point B, right? So the point is here is, yes, we, we need things, right? We need material things, but we don't seek happiness in them right? Because they won't bring us ultimate happiness. Now, Buddha also denies the idea of the fact that nothing matters in this world, and that's called nihilism. But he also denies the fact of eternalism, right? The idea of rebirth. So once again, the idea of balance in life. 
So there's a, there's a concept in, in Buddhism called the three marks, the three marks of existence. So in, in these three marks, Buddha points out that all things, all situations in life arise as a result of various causes and conditions. Okay, so nothing is independent, and there's a there's a true sense of interconnectedness. So, um, you know, example here. So, you know, I was on a call with a client recently, who was seeking to adopt one of our diabetic, you know, management solutions, and um, he this 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 client needed that because his workers are mainly truck drivers who stop at rest stops, and eat bad food. Right. And those are his words. Right. So he was very frustrated by that. But all of his truck drivers have diabetes. So it's interesting how connected everything is. Right. So these truck drivers, um, they're 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 hauling goods. They're stopping at rest stop uh, rest stops. They're eating bad food. They're getting diabetes. And that in turn um, forces the employer to pay more for their diabetic supplies. Right. Because they have to cover them through health insurance and to help manage their diabetic population, they hire me, right? So it's a very, very um, interesting scenario, but we're all connected somehow, right? And that's just one example. But anyway, let's come back to the three marks of existence that I was talking about before. So the first mark is going to be, um, I, and I might butcher, it's called anika. So everything is impermanent and subject to change. So that's what that means. Now, People have, have a need, right, for this, this certainty of permanence. Right? And, and when we don't get this, we feel this dissatisfaction with life, right? We want long-term things. We want long-term happiness. Um, we're, we are often, like, afraid of variability, and sometimes we even resist change, right? So that'll bring us to our second um, mark, which is dukkha, right? And that means suffering or the inevitability of death. Now... This, this concept of dukkha is, is more than just suffering of the physical body. It can be an existential type crisis too, right? Um, that, hey, nothing in life is going to give me satisfaction. But one thing, one thing we need to know is that everything has its limitations, right? And we should be aware of that. We shouldn't, we shouldn't attribute this long-term goal to, to one thing. Everything in this world has somewhat of a limitation. And when something reaches its end, we should not be upset by that, right? Because it's a natural progression. So coming into our third mark is anatta, which is everything is constantly changing and nothing is fixed, okay? So like we said, everything is subject to change and we should not resist that. And J. Cole said that in one of his songs, right? So um, uh, let's, let's, so let's talk about some uh, a, a situation, right? So my cousin, my cousin is, is much younger than me, right? 10, 10 years younger than me. Now... The kids nowadays, and I, that's made me sound so old, but, you know, you know, the younger, the younger generation pretty much have their own language, right? They have their own culture. And, you know, it, but if I want to be close, if I want to be close to my cousin, I have to realize that the world changes, right? And my way is not the right way. And I have to be relatable. I have to understand that things are constantly progressing. Things are constantly changing. And if I'm stuck in my point of view, then I'm never going to be able to relate, right, to anyone, let alone my own family. So that's what that that's what this means to me for the most part. So uh, an important note about these three marks is that Buddhism calls them out as observations, okay? So it's not direction, it's not insight. It's how the world is. It's not how it should be. 
It's an observation of how the world is. And I think that's very, very different than other religions because um, it doesn't apply, a, it doesn't give you a, a, a set of things to do that you must do, right? It says, the world is this way, right? Now, how are you going to adapt to it? So I think it's a very, very interesting concept. I might not even explain it properly, but um, it's resonating with me, right? I'm ingesting it. I'm thinking about it. I'm trying to apply it. So if we deny these truths about the world, we're going to be dissatisfied with our life and, and we're going to be frustrated, right? So if we deny that everything has its limitations, if we deny the inevitability of death, or if we deny that things change, we're going to be frustrated, right? We might not be fulfilled. So Buddhism doesn't really seek to promote an ideal world, but it gives you a way to be happy with what you already have in life, right? So let's talk about how we apply the, the middle way to daily life, okay? So we see this with the four agreements, right? The book also says that Buddhism goes into be practical, but always do your best. And that's one of the four agreements that Don Miguel Ruiz puts out. And that really puts the power of life back into your hands, right? Um, it, 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 you're in control of your outcomes, right? Um, if you do your best. Now, let, let's talk about what that means. So Buddhists aim to be vegetarian, right? So they don't want to cause any unnecessary suffering on animals. And we see that as a common theme through Hinduism and Jainism. But let's say a medical condition requires you to eat meat or there's nothing else, right? It's acceptable to, to eat meat, but it's up to that person's discretion, up to that person's code of ethics, right, to make that choice. Now, monks are also usually expected to eat gifts of food if it's given, right? So what the point here is that everything depends on the situation and the condition, and no two are the same, right? No two people are the same. So once again, life changes, we get old, people die, but this cannot be avoided by any means, right? But material, material security or self-denial is not going to bring is not going to change the situation and not going to bring you happiness okay so what that means to me is that if you act morally and you do good things you'll attain some form of peace right it might not be in the form of a of more money it might not be monetary um, it might not be more stature but peace will come to you and um, if you just act morally and I think that's very s simple yet complicated but an attainable goal right I'm um, sorry, I gotta get a sip there. Um, so let's talk about the concept of flexibility as it relates to Buddhism. So Buddhism, like I said, doesn't deny or confirm the existence of gods um, or an eternal soul for that matter, but it considers them an unnecessary distraction, okay? So Buddhism identifies knowledge starting from an analysis of experience, okay? Not just abstract speculation. Like I said, everyone's situation is different. Now, to me, this brings up the idea of competition, okay? So, you know, like I said, I grew up Hindu, and a lot of people who follow these Eastern religions and, you know, Indian people specifically, because I grew up with them, they generally compete with each other, either in, like, the, the church, the mandir, the temple, the mosque, as to how religious they are, right? Um, how, many, how many verses do you know? Um, how often do you go to church, the temple, the mosque? How often do you do these things? Frequency, right? So... What I think is this is an arbitrary rubric, right? And it can't be applied to individuals. And rote memorization is proven to not actually help you learn things. 
and everyone's situation is different, you know? Um, and what I like about Buddhism is that it's flexible. It's open to new cultural ideas because it's, it, it gives you the idea of change. But at the same time, it stays true to its basic principles. Awesome, right? So what I think about that is that every religion should be willing to change or it should be timeless, right? It should apply no matter what time period it's in. And that's not easy, right? So like, let's say a religion is outdated, right? Any religion. There's, there, there's no harm in having an update, right? right? Some, some key people in the religion, just updating it to bring it kind of into the 21st century. There is no harm in admitting that a principle could be outdated. But you'll see over time that when people start to question, the, an institution will have a rebuttal ready, right? No, that's not how it is actually, right? But it's like, hey, come on, let's work together. Obviously, questions are okay, right? It doesn't mean that um, we're going against it by any means. It's just okay to have questions, right? So another great point about Buddhism is that the middle way is open to everyone, right? And it says that the self is not stagnant, right? The self is always changing. And this is a very interesting concept because I've heard Joe Rogan say this before on his podcast, right? Where people might come up to him and say, man, you've changed, you've changed. But that can be, t that's, that's said in a negative light, but it's like, hey man, like I hope you change. I hope you continue to grow, right? I hope you know, you're not the same as you were five years ago, right? So like, you know, I'm trying new things. I'm trying photography. I'm trying new fitness things. I'm trying this podcasting thing out, but I'm changing. It's making me better. It's making me grow, right? So putting yourself in these uncomfortable positions, accepting that, hey, look, life is subject to change. I'm not going to resist it. Um, I'm just going to stay true to my principles. Um, and this is probably an interesting concept at the time when Buddhism was um, originating because class was everything and people couldn't rise above it. So, um, yeah, so that, a great first story to go through, right? The Enlightenment of the Buddha. We're going to hop off that and we're going to go through our, our next story here, which is um, Escape from the Eternal Cycle. Same thing around the 6th century BCE in northern India. So one of the first points here is that one of the main teachings of, of Buddha is the Dhamma, okay? So the Dhamma is the Four Noble Truths and one of the main goals of those Four Noble Truths is to overcome suffering, okay? So let's talk about the first noble truth. The first noble truth is dukkha, right? We talked about that. Um, suffering, the truth of suffering. So all life involves some type of suffering, okay? And it's not always going to be physical. It can be the feeling that life is pointless or meaningless, right? Now, I was just talking about this with my brother-in-law the other day, is that the reality of life can be very, very sad at times, right? Like, I always think about what, what's my purpose to you? Why am I here, you know? Um, you know, once your career settles off, once you have your own place, once you can f get some stability in life, right? You start to realize, like, what am I going to do with my life, right? Where do I see myself in 10 years? Um, do I wake up and go to work every day for the next 30 years, right? Like, I'm confused. That's depressing. Um, just the routine of it all, right? So anyway, just some food for thought. So we come to our second truth, which is samudaya, all right? So that says that the origin of suffering is craving, okay? And craving is, is called tanha, okay? So the origin of suffering is craving. Just say it one more time. So now people have a tendency to hold on to what they like, okay? Now they always say, okay, if I had this one thing, all my problems would go away. So Buddhism will define craving as counterproductive, okay? So beyond material things, you know, cravings for power, clinging to particular views and ideas, 
is identified as equally, if not more, harmful. Now, bring that back like a little bit more to, to modern day. Like, ha have any of you ever had a conversation with someone um, who is more than willing to share their beliefs and their ideas, right? But if you dive into it with them, if you ask them questions about it, or if you even present a contradicting opinion, do they become angry? Do they become uh, confrontational and things like that? Uh, you know, I, I think there's there's a lot of people who are willing to throw their religion on you, right? Um, but if you ask about it, they don't really have a logical reason for you, you know, uh, without going into too many deep examples. But if we if we cling to our beliefs and we don't really open ourselves up to hear others and hear where they've they've come from, we we're kind of being counterproductive in this world, right? We're clinging to one belief, and that can ultimately lead to pain, according to Buddhism. So the third principle, right, is nirodha, which is the absence of craving. Now, like we like we've been talking about, the absence of craving doesn't involve stopping life's normal activities, and I don't think it should, right? But we should be able to control our cravings. We should be able to understand. Um, when we're spending lavishly, when we're um, eating too much, when we're drinking too much, when we're doing anything too much, right? We should understand that. We should be able to reflect on ourselves because anything um, done in excess is going to be harmful for our body, right? So Nirodha is the state at which a person really understands and they deal with their life without the uh, emotional need for it to, to, for it to be better than it is, right? Now, you know, I was just talking about this with my fiance today, right? So I have a lot of friends that um, they, they've, they've released themselves from that nine to five, right? They've built up their income streams and um, they don't need a nine to five job. And sometimes I'm like, man, you know, that would be, that'd be awesome, right? And maybe I could do that, right? Maybe I, one day I, could, I, can, I can set that as a goal, right? But, you know, I realized the situations of these different friends of mine, right? And I didn't grow up like them, right? They had, they had a few other things, right? They had a few more supportive tools than I did, right? And, you know, I'm not trying to like play a sad story for myself or hop on my um, soapbox here, but we just have different situations. And after reading, you know, this, this text on Buddhism, I was like, you know, it's okay. It's okay that I am the way I am, right? I'm doing my best in life and um, I'm going to continue to give my best effort and hopefully it works out, right? If I continue to act morally, ethically, um, and always work hard, then hopefully, right, things are going to work out for me. What more can I do at that point? So, you know, just like just giving you some some peace right there, right? So once you really um, can click into that truth, right, they say nirvana comes after that, right, is a state of not craving, not escaping reality, but just being in control, right? Not needing this, not needing that. Now, you know, I'm not going to say like I've achieved nirvana, but like let's say one one particular example, right? So every year my family might start asking, hey, what do you, need, what do you want for your birthday, man? And, um, you know, not saying this is a, a sign of enlightenment, but it's like I, I don't really need anything, right? There's nothing I want bad enough to like ask someone for it, right? Um, you know, maybe some, I don't know, cologne or something. I don't, I don't even want that, right? Like, so it's like, it's very interesting um, when you get to a point where material things really aren't going to bring you any more happiness, right? You have to get into this 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 realm where you're you're looking for more experience, right? You're looking for more um, touch points with people. You're looking to gain more um, knowledge and things like that. And I think that's the whole journey I'm on right now, which is um, 
it's very interesting, right? Very interesting as I form these these different habits and uh, continue to embark upon this this journey for knowledge. So, coming back to the book, right? So we talk about this this truth, right? And, you know, the absence of craving. They say that this leads to an engaged state of happiness, right? So it's a form of happiness that comes from good moral conduct, okay? And another great aspect of it is that nirvana is accessible to anyone in this lifetime, okay? So not salvation at a later date or in heaven or anything like that. It's happiness that can be achieved in this world by any person, which I think is awesome, right? You don't need a priest to get you there. Um, it's not going to happen after you die. It's, it can happen right now if you apply these principles in your life, which I think is outstanding. Now, we come to our fourth noble truth, uh, which is maga. Okay? And that means the path that leads to the end of suffering. So within that path is the noble eightfold path. So a good, a good note here is that these are not sequential steps, but it's eight principles. Okay, So right view right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right mindfulness, right concentration, and right effort, right? So a lot of rights there. <laughs> so um, let's just walk them through, right? So you have, you have to be able to self-reflect and see the causes of your suffering if you want to take action towards nirvana, okay? So um, you got to understand the teaching but you also have to have intention to apply it in your life, right? Like with school, right? We understand that theory is fine. We, we went to college, grad school, understanding that theory is all good, but practical knowledge is, is very, very important, if not more so important, okay? So Buddhist mentality is not about obeying rules. It's about creating situations that facilitate a path towards enlightenment right? So you avoid telling lies. You avoid speaking harshly. Um, don't listen to gossip. Don't spread gossip, right? You have to cultivate a truthful, a purposeful, a kind speech, okay? They say don't, don't destroy life. Don't steal. Don't, don't misuse your senses. Don't cloud your mind. Um, earn a living in a way that doesn't go against any of those principles, right? And that's one of the main reasons I personally stay in the healthcare realm, right? Is because hopefully in some way I'm impacting a, a person's life positively through whatever facet, but that's why I stay in the healthcare realm. Hopefully I can get closer to patients, to members and things like that and help them, really find out what's wrong, really help find out the best way to help them. But, right, just, just staying in accordance with earning a living in a way that doesn't go against these eight principles. So we talk about right effort. And as we see with the power of now, um, uh, the four agreements, right effort requires conscious effort, right? Set aside your negative thoughts and replace them with positive thoughts. Be present, right? Only positivity. So um, be able to focus on one thing and, and calm your mind through this meditative breathing. Now, it sounds easy. It's not, right? Just sitting is not easy, right? Uh, putting your phone aside, not scrolling through some of the negativity in the in the news feeds and Instagram, Facebook, these things, but sit, breathe, clear your mind, right? We see a lot of, like I talked about in the last podcast with egos, right? People who, who hop on different platforms and think, you know, um, you see their ego coming to light, right? It's hard to just sit and focus on breathing and and do something without a stimulus, right? Or an end goal, or a monetary goal, or some kind of I want to be famous goal. 
just do things for the right reason. Do things because they'll make you better. Now, different people are going to focus on different parts of the path. And that's based on their circumstance, right? Which is great because it's not cookie cutter, right? There's no expectations in Buddhism. You just do your best. You just really try your best um, based on your circumstance. And it allows anyone to replace suffering with happiness, right? And contentment. Now, what, what that means is, you know, as I go on hikes, I often, me and my buddies often drive like hours and we go into these like rural areas, you know? And let's say like Iowa, right? I drive through Iowa and you see, you see a farm, right? And there's like one little house and you, you run through that guy, that, that person's day-to-day, -day, right? What do you think that person does day-to-day? -day? They might get up, you know, go tend to their, their, their farm animals, or they might plow the field, um, do that all day, and then they get a good workout in, come back, eat dinner, go to sleep, do it again, right? And for, for a long time, you know, you think that's like something negative, right? Oh, he's just a simpleton. But then you realize that a simple life is a good life, right? When you have too many moving pieces, it's too much to manage, right? So sometimes I really think that um, the simpler my life is, the better it is. And as you get older, right? As as you get older, you get into you, school, college, relationships, marriage, jobs, right? A lot of moving pieces in life, kids, family, right? Things like that. Um, it can really weigh down on a person. So I think simplicity is great, but you have to focus on the different parts of the Eightfold Path um, based on your circumstance. And a, a really good point here is that Buddhism places wisdom over faith, okay? And this is a little bit controversial, but I'm just going to go ahead and say it anyway. So a quote from the book, right, from the Dhammapada, um, which is a Buddhist text, Finding themselves threatened by danger, people take refuge in spirits, shrines, and sacred trees. But these are not a true refuge, right? So that's what the quote is. Now, in my particular religious upbringing, um, you know, you know, even with even so oftentimes with people I knew, my parents too, um, if if they wanted a good outcome, they would go to the mandir, right, and pray for that outcome, give faith, right. No need for anything else, just go give that faith. That's all good, right? And I, I I'm grateful for my life, and you know maybe it worked, right? But let's talk about even my religious upbringing. There was outright unspoken competitions amongst people who could memorize the most mantras or the most verses, right? Or competition amongst people who appear, who appear to be the most religious. Now, if you know the meaning behind these mantras and things like that, all good, right? And if you apply them, even better. But this competition and clinging to spirits can be noise and it can steer you away from actually taking charge of your life, right? Because then you become somewhat of a victim, right? If you... Like, I'm just going to go through this, right? If, if, we, if we pray and think our problems are going to go away without taking action, then we become a victim of life, right? We don't take charge of it when we really can, okay? So, like I said, a bit controversial there. Maybe I didn't articulate that as good as I could, but um, just some food for thought, okay? So that brings us to the end of uh, our second story, which was the escape from the eternal cycle, and we come into our third and final story, which is the development of Zen Buddhism, and that takes place um, from the 12th to the 13th century in Japan, right? So now you see Buddhism going from the Indian subcontinent over um, east. So the word Zen actually means meditation, okay? So it's an awakened consciousness outside of tradition and outside of scriptures, okay? So Zen seeks to allow 
enlightenment to happen naturally as a result of clearing your mind. So it does so without the need for a rational argument, without text or without rituals, okay? So the book outlines the story. So one day, Buddha had just held up a flower and he was spinning it in his hand. And he didn't say a word, but his student smiled and suddenly got the point of everything. And that, that's what he calls a wordless insight. Now, it was that insight that was passed down through 28 generations, all the way to one of Buddha's disciples, Bodhidharma, who took it to China and then spread to Japan. Now, Zen Buddhism states that people have two minds, right? So one mind um, is the small mind. So, uh, it's, it's acquired at birth, uh, and then it's influenced by the world around them, okay? So Zen Buddhism will say that there's also um, a Buddha mind in everyone. It's free from egocentric thinking, but it's hidden by the clutter of the mind, okay? So when people begin to recognize their Buddha mind, they... They, they, don't, they don't gain anything, right? It's not like, oh, I, I have this new uh, tangible thing, right? It's more like they realized what they've had all along. Now, this branch of Buddhism is going to say that people should try and remember their minds before they were conditioned by the world, right? Before they were conditioned by experience. Now, what that leads me to, to, to talk about is the difference between adults and young children, right? The ego, Okay. Now it seems like young children they have this curiosity, this this this, um, this youthfulness to life, right? They're not they're not blunted or jaded by some of the uh, harsh realities of the world. So um, they're students of the world ultimately. So they they don't think they know everything, and they're very curious to take on new information, right? If you look in a newborn's eyes, they're taking out they're taking on everything. Everything's new. Everything's great, right? So um, in terms of Zen Buddhism there's this process of prolonged sitting, and that's correlated to enlightenment, right? So a person doesn't sit in order to become enlightened, but in the act of sitting, the person who is already enlightened stills and clears their mind away from the illusion of a, of a separate self, and that is enlightenment right there. So the, they go forward and say, nothing new is known. All that is known is that it is not necessary to know everything. Not everything needs an explanation, right? Some things just happen. So a lot of a lot of Morpheus-esque things going on there, right? But nothing new is known. All that is known is that it is not necessary to know anything. Not everything needs an explanation. So once again, Buddhism, Zen Buddhism, is about creating situations that bring insight without trying to express it or explain it rationally. So, you know, a great, you know, a great, a great a note here, a great podcast on, on Buddhism. So that's all I got for you guys today, right? A little bit longer of a podcast, but I hope you guys really enjoyed that. I love Buddhism. Um, it's been one of my favorite religions to read about so far. So I hope you guys are enjoying the podcast. Feel free to leave me any feedback. And remember, only positivity. Thanks, guys.